Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Uh, we've been making a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Before we get to that today and back into the Sermon on the Mount, we want to grab hold of a, a proverb I think is especially appropriate for today. This is uh, from the Message Translation. It's Proverb 29, verse 18. Here it goes. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. And maybe you can identify with that. I mean, think of a moment in your life when you really couldn't see, like where you were going, what you were doing, and you ended up making a, a fool of yourself. You fell all over the place. I can say it's happened to me a few times. Or maybe, maybe it's more applicable to your driving record. And you're like, oh, I just couldn't see them, officer, and crash, right? That kind of stuff happens. It does. Happened to me many times as a teenager. My parents can testify. They gave me the grace of God through many accidents, and now I'm a better driver by most accounts, all right? Um, but I, there's something about this and this wisdom that, that I want us to grab hold of. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when we can, when we attend to what he reveals, we can be most blessed. This takes me back to seventh grade. When I was in seventh grade, um, you know, in my school, we used to always have these like uh, annual checkup things. We'd all go to the school nurse and we'd read the eye chart. I don't know if they still do this or not, but in our day they did. And I remember we'd all stand behind the piece of tape and we'd look over there and it was always just kind of like we're jacking around in the hall, like elbowing each other and everything. Finally, it's your turn. You stand there and you look, and you read the letters and it's no big deal. Well, I remember this happened to me in seventh grade. I'm standing there and I'm reading the things and it's like, nah. and then the, the nurse looks at me like, hmm, like that was creative. I was like, I'm not trying to be creative. I'm just, anyway, she made it clear that the words were unclear to me. And so off we went. My mom scheduled a visit to the optometrist. It was a family friend from church who was the optometrist. So anyway, we went to the doctor's office and I get in the seat and they start flipping those lenses. You know, I was like, oh. <gasps> What's going on here? Like, it's like clear. I remember that day we decided I needed glasses or contacts. I was like, no contacts, please. I got it because I run around, play sports all the time. I just let's go with the contacts. And after trying for a long time, not accustomed to doing makeup as a seventh grader or any time at this point. So, but I'm trying to cram that, that contact in my eye. And finally, I get them in. I remember walking out of the office, the same sidewalk we walked in on. We were walking out, and there were trees, a few in Lubbock, right? And, and, and it was right there, I remember seeing and thinking, whoa, like there are little individual leaves on all of the little trees. Like it was a moment of like, oh, like I could see, I could see. And it was like, it was amazing. I started jumping, running, singing. None of that happened, that other part. But I was just like, whoa, I can see. It was this moment of like new perspective. I pray our journey through the Sermon on the Mount has been like that for you. That some, there's been clarity. There's been perspective gained. That's the point. In fact, if you're paying attention, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to be invested in humanity's healing, right? He's talk, first, he talks a lot about the, the hearing that's gone wrong, right? Um, it, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. There's something wrong with humanity's hearing, and, and Jesus, the king, but this kingdom is trying to clean that up. And then there's a turn in, Matthew's chapter, in Matthew chapter 6 where he starts to talk about how the eye is the lamp of the body. 
And he says, if the eye is unhealthy, then the whole person is in danger, right? Well, I want to continue um, thinking about that and thinking in that way. Again, remember, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. Well, Jesus continues to reveal some deep truths. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 to keep looking, keep listening, keep learning from Jesus. So if you want to join me there, Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going, verses 1 through 6. And this is what Jesus said to the disciples he gathered around him. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Wow. Um, there's a lot going on there. Jesus seems intent on packing as much into just a few uh, sentences as possible, right? So, I, you know, as we're looking at it, you may notice a few things. First, there's this, uh, there's this curious case of plank eye, right? Like, and it's uh, weird. Um, and maybe you're wondering to yourself, is there like some cultural context for this that kind of makes this make sense in the first century? And the answer is no, you don't need cultural context for this. This is just a person with a giant plank in their eye trying to do um, helpful speck replacement out of something. It's ludicrous. Like it's ridiculous. And that's part of the point. We'll get to that here in a second. Um, but then you've also got this stuff about dogs and pearls and pigs. And we're going to touch that in a minute too. But first I want to focus on, on where Jesus starts with this prohibition that's very direct and um, unqualified. Do not judge. Well, it sounds like something he said just, uh, just a little bit earlier. Do not worry. Which I love because it's like, you know, if you have anxiety in your life, just don't worry. And you're like, well, thanks for that. Like, uh, how and why and when and where? Jesus takes up the similar um, pattern here is he just says, do not judge. And so it's important to kind of sit with this for a second and try to unpack it. Um, what, what is Jesus saying? What's he not saying? Um, I think it's important to understand what word Jesus is using here and what it really means, right? So this, this word he uses for judge is, it can mean a lot of different things. And in the New Testament, it's used um, many times and it's translated differently. Um, in this case, it seems clear what Jesus is talking about is a judgment that is, that is rendered as, as final, as ultimate, right? Like uh, the idea here is that um, heaven and earth will pass away and a moment is coming when the judge will sit on the throne. He'll render judgment and he's not you or me. He's the judge. So don't try to be who he is or play the role he's to play. Do not judge or you too will be judged and by the way that measure you're using for others it's going to be used on you so there's a warning that comes with this prohibition right don't because if you do look out and Jesus seems quite serious about this and you have to wonder why 
Now, the church has not been a, a perfect family, right? Through the years, we've, even City Church, I know, <gasps> we haven't been perfect, right? Uh, you go all the way back into, uh, you know, 1500s, and there was this thing called the Reformation, when the church had kind of developed some habits that weren't healthy. And Martin Luther raised his hand, and he said, I think I got some ideas. And one of those kind of flowed from that time. It was this idea of, like, sola scriptura, the idea that, like, Scripture alone is where we should look for who the church should be and how we should live. And it was this novel idea which helped the church get healthier. I want to give you another one this morning that flows straight from these words. Um, here it is, and it's in Latin for fun. Deus solus iudex ultimus. I don't know what that means. It's not a test. Sorry, if it felt that way for a second. It means God alone, the ultimate judge. God alone, the ultimate judge. I think this is a foundational truth in the kingdom of God. And we can only be the kingdom God wants us to be if we hold on to this truth. God is the ultimate judge. It's not you. It's not me. We're bad at it, so let's stop, okay? And again, we're talking not about good judgment, sound judgment. We're talking about the judgment. And that's not your job or mine. So Jesus makes that clear, but he's not done. He continues to, to teach, and he goes on to, to talk about this plank eye thing. I, Matthew chapter 18, I think, can help us understand what comes next. Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. You want to flip over there, find some more good stuff. Jesus teaching again, but this time he's using a parable. because Sometimes parables could help people see a little more clearly. Sometimes, honestly, it also just confused them. So if you've ever been on either side of a parable, it's okay, all right? But Jesus wants us to know and understand more. So this is what he said, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. You're thinking, that's a lot of gold. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. With this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Well, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Hmm. You know, there's a, there's a king in this story who seems to be um, altogether different than most kings, right? He's got this enormous sum on the books that he, he, he deserves to be paid, and he just wipes it away. But he doesn't wipe it away um, on a whim. This king seems to have something else in mind. You know, the king is after more than just one transaction, he seems to be expecting transformation. He's got more than a transaction. He wants transformation. Because when he finds out that the servant who's been forgiven so much, who's received great mercy, 
turns around and doesn't have it for anybody else. He's angered. That's the word. He's angered. Because that's not the way it's supposed to work in this kingdom. Instead, those who receive mercy aren't supposed to let it stop with them, but instead to let it keep flowing and keep growing so that mercy becomes even greater. You know, the cure for this like spiritual myopia, this, this myopic fixed gaze on what might be wrong in you or what we, might be wrong in me or what might be wrong in our world, the cure for it is mercy. Mercy. So for a second, I want you to think about what's wrong with you. Some of you got, I want to need more than a second. I got some of you. But think for a moment, what's wrong with you? Like, what, what, even despite your best intentions, what are those habits that you keep, or those, those qualities in you that you just really do despise, or you really fall short? Did you know there's mercy for you? And not just a little bit, but more than you can imagine. Though your sins be as scarlet, he has made them white as snow. Though your sins are many, his mercy is greater. And he extends it to you. So instead of fixating on what's wrong with you, focus on this manifold mercy of God. For some of us, that's not where we struggle, right? Like we, we get it. Yeah, God loves me. He's forgiven me. Our problem is, yeah, God loves them. God's forgiven them. And we see mercy for us, but we, the, the tunnel vision gets small in terms of who God has mercy for. Well, that's not the kingdom our king is bringing. He wants more than one transaction. He wants transformation. And for that mercy to flow through you to others. And so he got angry. You know what the cure is for your spiritual myopia when you can't see the, the mercy God has for others? Mercy. Mercy. And more mercy. Maybe you're just thinking, well, that sounds difficult. Um, it is. But that's a part of maturity in Christ. That's how we grow up in him. If you want proof of that, Paul made it clear in Romans chapter 12. It's one of my favorite small little um, characterizations of what it means to, to grow up in Christ and to mature, to develop, to transform. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, they say this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, uh, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect. And we love the last part of that, right? Like, we all want that. We all want to be able to see clearly, like, what's God's will? And yeah, it's good and it's pleasing. Yeah, I got it. I can see it. We all want that in our life. Few of us linger longer enough at the beginning of this to understand how we get there. How does it start? Therefore, in view of your greatness. No, no. Now, therefore, in view of your outstanding baseball skills. Now, there's nothing you can put there that, that sounds better or truer than these words. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. Then you can get started. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's our response to his great mercy, right? And then there's this thing, but we don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. It's all about your know, judgment and a hypercritical spirit. But instead, we're transformed. Our minds are renewed. And then we can see God's will and we can live it. But it all starts with 
mercy. Seeing the manifold mercy of God. You know, we always make a habit of, of doing this feet to your faith thing, and I love that about us, but, but I felt like in this message we needed to think a little more practically before we could get there. So before talking about feet to our faith, I want to talk about pedal to the metal, okay? How many of you guys ever drive along the road between like the river over here on 250 and like the YMCA? You, you got ever, anybody ever drive that stretch of road? How impossible is 35 miles an hour? <laughs> Let's be honest, okay? That's ludicrous. Like, it doesn't happen. And if you've ever been driving through that stretch, it's like no one's going 35. Some people might be going 40. The regular people are going 45. And then occasionally somebody's going 78, just like, like they're weaving through it. Uh, and the poor people on the access roads are just like, like trying, which is why it's supposed to be 35, because we want them to come along. But uh, good luck, right? Like it's just, well, Anna Wren Rogers knows a little bit about that stretch of road too. So, you know, I asked her for permission to share this. She agreed it could be shared. So a few months ago, um, she's getting out of school early. I'm like, well, meet me for lunch. And so she's making the, road, the drive from um, Monticello High School um, over to Guadalajara over here. And uh, then I, she's not here. And I'm like, what's going on? She calls and say, Daddy, I got pulled over. What do I do? And Ram was going in a 35, okay? Much faster than 35, okay? And so she got a ticket. And she brought it to me. She didn't know what to do. Like she, she was like, I don't know. I was like, How does this work? And I'm like, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll probably have to go to the clerk and pay the fine or something. Okay. Well, we finally went to the courthouse, the clerk. And they said, well, you got a couple options. You can pay for this. And I'm like, I'm not paying for this. You can pay for that. She's like, I don't want to pay for that. It's a lot of money. So she said, or you can appear before the judge. And, you know, maybe there's an option you could take, um, you know, like a driving school thing. And maybe that could take the points away. And that's probably the better option. We were like, Sounds good. We'll do that. So we got our court date, went back to court. We dressed up real nice, looking good. No hat, phone, like somewhere else, not in my pocket and not on, because I know the rules. So we're standing there, and we're all both a little terrified, okay? And we're, we're, uh, we're just doing our best. And uh, finally, it's our turn, first, first person in the morning to appear before the judge, which isn't a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, has he had a good morning? We'll see. So we're standing there, and, uh, and the officer He's also standing there, and he's relaying the facts of the case. And uh, then he asks uh, Anna Wren, and she's like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> We're just, it's all out there on display. And the judge, in his great mercy, offered us an option to take driving school. The judge is actually seated here, seating here, seated, seated here with us today. At the end of our time, the judge said as we were leaving, all right, Pastor Keith, we'll see you on Sunday. And I was like, Justice David Barreto. Where are you, David? Right over here. He was the man on the bench. Yeah. And they had, they had uh, just started kind of coming to city church, and I totally was not in city church mode. I was in, like, don't go to jail mode. And so, uh, but that mercy extended to us and to other teenagers who make this mistake um, was, was so good. You know, it was even better than that because we found ourselves in this school. And it wasn't called defensive driving school, like a class I took on repeat through my teen years. Uh, it was called perceptive driving school. Perceptive, which is different, right? And it made me curious. Okay, well, like, what are we going to do? We do the same thing, just calling it something fancy or like, what's the deal? Well, it's a different kind of approach. Really, it's, a pro it's three things that they try to get done, as I could tell. 
in perceptive driving school. One is there's an effort to train our eyes to see what really matters when we're driving. I'm looking here, I'm looking there, I'm looking there. I've got my eyes open and on the road, and I'm looking, and I'm judging correctly, like the amount of space between me and somebody else. Like, it is really good stuff. Training the eyes to be a perceptive driver. Second, the, the program is designed to partner you with people who love you to improve your perception. You know, teenagers don't get to come alone. A parent must attend with them. Not that any parents need any help with perceptive driving, because <laughs> we got that. But it ended up being like really smart because we're walking through this together. Occasionally, parents are in the room nodding, yeah, that's right. And then we're doing the math, and we actually have to go drive together and make judgments about how far something is. And then the, the kids are like, see, Dad, you can't do it either. See, Bob, you... And there's all this going on in the car. It's like along the way, we're helping each other be more perceptive drivers. And then finally, it's, uh, it's all about practicing discernment. It's about taking what you've learned and then applying it in a way that's more meaningful. It's wiser. So the, the program's brilliant. You could probably take perceptive driving if you want to. You can sign up or something like that. You guys who have teens that are about to drive, don't let um, driving school be the last of your training. This is a great opportunity. Um, so I want to grab hold of some of those truths. And I, and I want us to think practically about putting feet to our faith in terms of how we see and being a people who, in the kingdom, practice perceptive living. So this is the first. Training our eyes to see what really matters. What really matters in the kingdom of God is the great mercy of God. If you're struggling to see that, if you're thinking, well, I just my eyes don't seem to see that. When I see things going on, I think about how dumb they are. Or how stupid this person is. Or how ridiculous it is. Then you can train your eyes. The Gospels are a gift to every one of us. Not just one account, but four. They give us a really good look at how Jesus dealt with those around him who were really struggling to see clearly, who were living in a way that didn't line up with what he wanted for their lives. How does he respond in great mercy, especially for those no one seems to think deserve mercy? He's eager to give it. And that's where it starts for him, with great mercy. Training our eyes by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God in the judgment seat where you and I don't sit. Fix your eyes on him and train your eyes. Second, partnering with loving people to improve our perception. Just as there's uh, four gospel accounts, that help us see Jesus more clearly, inviting people into your life and having conversations that help you see more clearly is a really wise kingdom principle. You graduates that are just about to jump off into life and your parents have been really like hopefully like readily accessible to talk through things and think through, you're gonna find yourself in a new place with new people and new opportunities to really screw it up, okay? And you're gonna have all these options and and don't be short-sighted. Invite people who you trust, who are wise around you to help you see clearly and process things with them. That's wisdom. And choose to be merciful. Third, well, actually, before we say that, um, I think it's important as a church we practice that too. This isn't just like for graduates, and it's not something that we can put in our rearview mirror and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. I'm, 
I'm totally good about um, always partnering with loving people to improve my... Uh, here's an option. This summer, we have something we're calling Summer Serve. You heard of City Serve. Many of you probably participated in City Serve. And maybe you thought, oh man, I wish we could do this for a whole summer. Well, guess what? There are opportunities all summer in our community to partner with those who love well and to grow as a people who love well. Uh, I mean, you, you get to bless people. And right now, it just went up on our website at like midnight last night, this great presentation of all the options that are available. You can go to our website, click on Summer Serve, and then underneath that, you see all these options for ways to develop relationships, partner with people, to love well, and to grow in that yourselves. Another thing you can do to put feet to your faith. Finally, um, practicing discernment. Now, there's this weird part at the end. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. And the truth is, scholars have a lot of different ideas about what's going on here at the end. You know, early on, uh, the church fathers felt like this was kind of a, a prohibition against um, letting the wrong people into the church or giving the wrong people the, the Lord's Supper. They felt like, you know, you don't do that because they don't really appreciate it. But others came along and began to think differently about this. Like maybe this is about the wisdom we have as Christians and a world that doesn't recognize that. And if you share that wisdom, uh, then, you know, maybe they won't understand. And as a result, uh, they'll throw rocks at you and stuff, which happened and happens. But, but really, I think there's something deeper going on here. And it's easier to understand if we go back to the first words, do not judge or you too will be judged. And with the measure you use, do not cast things that are sacred before dogs or pearls before pigs. Why? Pigs and dogs don't need jewelry. And our world doesn't need more judgment. Pigs and dogs don't need jewelry. Our world doesn't need more judgment. What does our world need? Mercy, love. And, and when our world is ready for the wisdom of God, it'll be because we have a relationship that affords us opportunity to speak that in a way that's loving, that's kind, that's wise. But have we learned? The church can do a great deal of damage to our cities and our communities when we rush with judgment and sit in a seat that's not ours. Instead, be men and women of mercy and build relationships and love well, trusting that we'll get that opportunity to do more. I gotta share this because I didn't in the first service and someone came up to me and they asked a question and it was obvious this is a word that, that needed to be added to this message. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus asks his disciples a question, a really good question. He says, well, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, there's all these different answers. And then he turns to them and he says, but who do you say I am? And they were all a little taken aback. Peter spoke up. He said, you're the Messiah. They said, you're right. You're right, I, I am. But Peter didn't understand what that really meant because next few words, Jesus goes on to explain what it means to be the Messiah. I'm going to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to die on the cross. And Peter's like, no, 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 you don't No, That's not it. Um, he pulls it. And then you know what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. In this moment, Peter had a very narrow view of who this king and this new kingdom was supposed to be. 
And he was going to absolutely kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. He was going to bathe the streets with the blood of these Romans who have been so mean, so oppressive. Was that the kingdom way? No. Instead, this Messiah was a Messiah of mercy. And those words, get behind me, Satan, was an indication that we do live in the midst of a battle. And there's an enemy that just wants more violence. He just wants more hate. He just wants more hurt. But Jesus didn't come for that. And he hasn't called us to that either. Instead, it's a mission of mercy. It's a mission of mercy. So I want to invite you to worship that God with me now before we send you away with a blessing today. A blessing to go and do likewise. So if you don't mind, stand. Let's worship together.